Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. I'm Father Chris. Uh, it's exciting to have you with us. Um, as you saw on your screen, the topic for our talk today is papal infallibility. Is the Pope a sinner or is the Pope infallible? And this is a critically important time today for a couple reasons. Uh, we as Catholics get beat up pretty good for having a Pope. And then most recently in the last few years, there have been some confusion about the statement from our Pope. So we're going to talk about this today. We're going to ask you to stay with us uh, for a very important day. And God bless you. Let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, through the intercession of Our Lady of Mount Carmel on this beautiful day of her feast day, we ask for Our Lady's intercession to be able to receive the grace of your church, the grace of the church that is led by the chair of Peter and the papacy that you established. And we ask that we be faithful, all of us, including the chair of Peter, to, the faithful, to be faithful to the teachings of the church. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so as we said, this is an important topic now. The Pope, infallible or a sinner? What is papal infallibility? It is not what you think. I can promise you that. Even when I got to seminary, and I dug up my seminary notes. I want to thank uh, Chris Sparks. Um, he's a theologian that I worked with on some of this. I did a lot of research online, pulled up the seminary notes. So we'll teach you what you need to know in a fun way with examples. Now, we're going to base this all on the Bible. Everybody yells at us Catholics. I'm not, I'm not, you're basing it not on the Bible. Yes, we are. All right, so Peter is mentioned in the Bible 191 times, more than all the other apostles combined. Who's mentioned the next most? John at only 48. All the apostles combined 130 times. <clears throat> so this is important. Now, after the apostles died, more authority is needed to protect the church against heresies. So it makes sense that we have the magisterium and the papacy, which we're going to talk about. There has to be unity. And the only way you're going to have unity is to have a leader. All right. Every institution that has survived has a leader. And the Catholic church is the oldest continuous institution in the history of the world. There is no other institution in existence that has been so longer than the Catholic Church. Doesn't that tell you something? Despite her mess-ups, despite her sins. Now, in the first 200 years, do you know this? That all the popes but one were murdered. This is amazing. In the first 200 years, all the popes but one were martyred. So the Romans truly knew who the head of the church was because they killed him. Satan truly knew who the head of the church was, because he killed him. <clears throat> the first 200 years, all the popes except one. This is unbelievable. All right, so where's the pope in scripture? I don't see the pope. I don't see the word papacy in scripture. Oh, it's the same as the word trinity. Trinity is described, not mentioned by word. Same with the pope. All right, 
So much scripture. We're going to spend a few minutes here. Now, the biggie, Matthew 16, 18. You are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. He did not say, uh, you man-made people will build your church. We hear this all the time. I'm not into man-made religion. Peter did not build the church. He was the rock upon which Jesus built the church. Well, I'm not into man-made tradition. Okay, well, that's great. Neither am I. But I am into the tradition that Christ gave to his church, to men to pass on to me. All right. So Jesus founded his church at Pentecost. This is from Acts 2. We know this. Now, Jesus founded his church upon people, not principles. Jesus did not say, you are the Bible, and upon this Bible, I will build my church. Jesus didn't say that. There was no Bible in the room that day. In fact, there was no Bible through 350 years later. And that came from the church. The church was born 350 years before they pieced together the Bible out of hundreds of letters, dozens of gospels. And who pieced it together? The Catholic Church. The Councils of Carthage and Hippo, 393, 397 AD. So let's take a look at our next slide. This is Matthew 16, 19, the very next verse. The keys were given to Peter to signify authority to govern the house of God. That is the church. There you see Peter, right? In ancient times, this is important, keys represented authority. All right? A walled city. Suppose there was a city with a wall around it. It might have a one big gate. And that gate always had one big lock. And there was always one great key. So when you're given that key, you're the man, okay? All right, so to be given the key to the city meant to be given free access to and authority over the city. Now, what city are we talking about? Well, Jesus just told us, heaven. This is the city to which Peter was given the keys, was the heavenly city itself. Now, Matthew 16, 19 goes on. The power to bind and loose, this is a big one, conferred to Peter in particular, gave him by giving the keys and saying, you, what you bind in heaven, or excuse me, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven and what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. This is key. What does that mean? All right, first of all, it is seen to all the church fathers and the people of the time as authority that Christ had given. You know, who had ultimate authority to forgive sins on earth? Jesus. But when you have ultimate authority, you have the power to delegate it. Uh, you always hear me tell the story, it fits here perfectly. When I had my business I, in North Carolina, I started it, I funded it, I founded it. Nobody else. I funded it, founded it, started it. I had ultimate authority. But when I would leave, I would say, Brian or Karen, while I'm gone, you're in charge. You have my authority. I give it to you because I had the authority. I could give them the authority. If there was somebody to hire, hire, somebody to fire, fire. You have my authority. I always laugh. You're in persona, Chris. 
because I had the authority and I gave it to him. Now, that's in a minuscule way compared to Christ giving the apostles the authority. He had ultimate authority. He had the power to delegate it. So what is this authority? The authority to absolve sins. I absolve you in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. It doesn't mean that the priest forgives your sins. It means Christ gave him the authority in his name to forgive sins. Yes, the priest does, but only from the authority of God. It means that he can pronounce judgments on doctrine. What you bind or loose on earth is bound or loose in heaven to make decisions on church discipline. You have the authority. So you only have it, though, because I gave it to you, Jesus says. Jesus is basically saying, you have it because I gave it to you. Yes, later in Matthew 18, 18, he says it to the other apostles, but here in a special way to Peter. Now we're not done. Luke 22, 32, what happens here? Jesus gave Peter the mission to strengthen the faith of his brothers. He says, you, Peter, your job is to strengthen your brother's faith. So here we see him as a leader. Then John 21, 15 to 17, he basically tells him, feed my sheep. So we see that he's a teacher. Feed my sheep. So whenever they are named, <laughs> it always seems when you read the scriptures, whenever the apostles are named, Peter is always first. That's called primacy. Peter's always first. Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, Acts 1. All right, what about the apostles? When they are referred to often, like Luke 9, 32, Peter and those who were with him. Peter. So Peter generally spoke for the apostles. He was always speaking for the apostles. Matthew 18, 21, Mark 8, 29, Luke 12, 41, John 6, 68. And go on and on. He figured in the most dramatic scenes of scripture, the walking on water, the transfiguration, Matthew 14, 28, Matthew 17, 24, Mark 10, 23. You can see it. On Pentecost, what happened? Acts 2, 14, on Pentecost, it was Peter who first preached to the crowds. He was the first. He was the first to work the healing in the church, Acts 3, 1 through 7. He was the first. An angel was sent to announce the resurrection to Peter. You may have forgot this, Mark 16, five through seven. The risen Christ appeared to Peter and not the other apostles, Luke 24, 34. He headed the meeting, this is Peter, that elected Matthias to replace Judas. This is Acts 1, 13 through 26. He received the first converts into the faith. This is Acts 2, verse 37 to 41. He led the first council in Jerusalem. This is Acts 15. He announced the first dogmatic decision. This is Acts 15, 7 through 11. He inflicted, we, we forget this a lot today. We forget this a lot. And we need to pray for our magisterium but he inflicted the first punishment. Now, I'm about mercy, trust me, because I need mercy. But we also need to hold to the teachings of the church. Call upon our bishops and our Holy Father to do that. Peter inflicted the first punishment. Oh, but we, we, can't, be, we can't be mean. No, this is the greatest thing you could do for somebody. Get them back on the road to salvation, done with love. 
That's Acts 5, 1 through 11. Do you know he excommunicated the first heretic? <laughs> Boy, we could see that today, right? No, we don't. We don't. We got politicians running around, not only defaming church teaching, not only completely lying and saying, my faith says it's totally okay to support abortion, hogwash. And then we got church authority granting them holy communion. Well, not St. Peter. He excommunicated the first heretic. Acts 8, chapters, verse 18 through 24. Again, I am about mercy. I need mercy. God could flush me down the toilet in a second by the second I wake up every morning for something stupid I say or do. I'm all about mercy. But at the same time, we can't condone things that are contrary to the teaching of the church. The key is that you repent. God will give you all the mercy in the world if you repent, if you ask for it, if you're sorry. I mean, every night I do my exam and I'm like, oh, geez, how stupid, you know, because we do realize we do stupid things. But the only thing I can tell God is, God, you know, I'm trying. You know, I'm trying. All right. It was Peter that the revelation that the Gentiles were to be baptized as Christians first came. Acts 10, verse 46. Okay, I can go on and on here. But you get the point. All right, what about the big one? Peter, you are the rock. Let's take a closer look at this. Let's look at our next slide. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. Now, some have suggested that the word rock does not refer to Peter. It must refer to his profession of faith or to Jesus himself. No, I can't. I don't have the time right now to go into all this, but I, I'll get to it in a homily. The sentence structure shows that it is not his profession of faith. They're separated too far. And regarding Jesus, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, the fact that Jesus is called the cornerstone shows Peter is a different kind of foundation. Peter is a foundation only because Christ is the cornerstone, all right? Christ told Simon, remember Peter's name was Simon, right? Christ told Simon that his name would therefore be Peter, which translates to rock. That's John 1.42. Now, making, uh, this is interesting because I hear this a lot. Let me explain this one here. The time up until that time, who else was called rock? Only God. Only God was called rock in the Old Testament. It was never used as a proper name. Now, giving a new name meant this is something important. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people, I get these comments all the time. God bless them. You Catholics are crazy. You don't know your Bible. Because the Bible says Petra, the Greek and that's feminine. If the Bible was talking about Peter was the rock, it would say Petros, the masculine. And the last I checked, Father, Peter was a man. Yeah, Peter was a man. There's none of this. Well, I won't get into that topic right now. So everybody says, you Catholics are crazy. It was not Peter who built the rock because the Bible says Petra, the Greek. What language was the Bible written in? Greek. So it would have said Petros, the masculine. 
It said it says Petra. How do we explain that? Most of us Catholics sit there and go, oh, whoa, yeah, oh, I didn't know that. I guess I better abandon my faith. No. You know why that? You can't use that argument? That argument is in the Greek, right? Petra and Petros. Jesus didn't speak Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic to his apostles. He did not speak Greek to his apostles. They were written in Greek. And so the one word in Aramaic for rock is kepha. That would have been the word. And guess what? There's not masculine and feminine. They're both kepha. So Jesus couldn't have used the feminine speaking Aramaic to the apostles. So this is very important. All right, now, in Aramaic, there's only one word for rock, as I said, kepha. So when, the, when, when he first saw Simon and said, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the word Cephas is a translation of the Aramaic kepha, rock. So he's calling Peter a rock, not a little feminine pebble. Okay, that's hogwash. All right, but a lot of people rightfully bring up, okay, what about all the scandals, Father? Uh, what about all the sins? Popes have sinned, yes. But the many people will say, well, then that means the church is not the church of God. Priests have sinned, bishops have sinned, the Holy Fathers have sinned, yes. But we are apostles, and the word apostle is translated apostolos, which really means one who is sent to preach. All right, let's look at our next slide. Here's a picture of that. Christ's apostles were sent by him, endowed with the authority to teach in his name, even imperfectly. Okay, one was a thief and betrayed him, Judas. Now, this is the all-star team Jesus picked, okay? Jesus had the chance to pick his team. Did Jesus pick an all-star team? All right. One he picked was a thief and betrayed him, Judas. One he picked denied him, not once, not twice, three times, Peter himself. One he picked didn't believe in the resurrection, Thomas. And all others that he picked ran away at the cross except John. Yet Jesus appointed all of them to preach in his name. How? These are a bunch of ragtag sinners. Well, you got it. Jesus said and answers our question in Matthew 10, 19. Listen to this. What you are to say will be given to you. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking in you. What is Jesus saying right there? I'm protecting. So however, be careful though of anti-Catholic propaganda about the papacy. You know, Jesus said they hated me first. They're going to hate you too. Oh, there's so much anti-Catholic propaganda. I mean, every day I'm getting comments. Father, the, my favorite one now is that we didn't kill millions. We've killed hundreds and hundreds of millions. One said that we've killed millions of millions. What is that? These are, you just, you have to understand true teaching. My, one of the interesting ones is the myth in the 13th century. You've ever heard this one? The woman Pope, Pope Joan. You heard this one? Oh, this one runs rampant. This is the falsity of the Catholic Church. Uh, in the 13th century, is the story of the female Pope, the infamous Pope Joan. All right, she hid her sex 
by dressing as a man. And they elected her pope. Joan's secret was revealed when she gave birth during a procession. One version of the myth indicates that Joan died as a result of the childbirth, but the other version said that an enraged mob tied her to a horse and dragged her through the streets of Rome until the mob stoned her. This is completely false. This is all anti-Catholic propaganda. However, it does wake us up, though. It shows a sad, sad state of affairs in the church hierarchy, even back in the 9th century, 10th century, 11th, 12th centuries. It does. And nobody here is denying that we don't have to clean up our church. Thank God we got some groups that are doing a great job of trying to do that. The groups of the laity, mostly. Praise be to God for that. We need to clean up. We need to clean it up. <clears throat> but that doesn't take away the trueness of the faith. One of the best people I know named Frank, he's the first one to tell you, I live for the church, I'll die for the church, I'll fight my death to the church, the church is the truth, but we got to clean it up. We got to clean it up. Praise be to God. Now, can a sinful pope be called infallible? Hmm, this is a great question. The most misunderstood word, I think, in our faith is infallible. Infallible does not mean sinless. This is important. Papal infallibility, infallibility, listen to this. Quote from Catechism 891. Papal infallibility means that the Pope is protected from error when he, quote, proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining only to faith or morals. So does that mean if the Pope gets up there and says something really dumb that you have to believe it? No. Only when he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. Not about I'm against building the wall or I'm in favor of a vaccine. You do not have to follow that. That is not infallibility. Okay? This is one thing our church doesn't understand. This does not mean he's impeccable. The Pope is not impeccable, meaning incapable of sin. Is he inerrant, meaning incapable of error? What did I just say? Only when speaking in defined doctrine, ex cathedra, or in union with the College of Bishops, spoken as infallible, is he infallible? So if the Pope says that you've got to take the vaccine, that is not infallible. If he says that it is bad to do the extraordinary form of the mass, that is not infallible. That's not even true. But that's not declared infallible. You see the point? Sinlessness is a quality pertaining to morals, not making a mistake in teaching. Sinlessness means you are it's pertaining to morals that you're not making a mistake in behavior, not teaching. I'm a perfect example. I can get up here and preach and teach the truth I feel. I'm doing it to the best of my ability, and I can leave right here and say something stupid and, 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 and have sin. Got to go to confession. Just because I'm sinless, excuse me, not sinless, 
doesn't mean that it's tied to teaching. Now, you need to live as you teach. That's the problem. But infallibility pertains to a doctrine. A doctrine. Not making a mistake when proclaiming teaching. A doctrine of faith and morals. So sinlessness is not required for infallibility. Every non-Catholic points this out. How dare you call your pope infallible? He's a heretic. He's a mason. All that stuff. Okay. But that's not what we're saying. Sinlessness does not require for infallibility. <clears throat> Surprisingly, one can do sinful things and still have the right teaching, believe it or not. Now, it doesn't give you credence, but you can do it. Look at Solomon. Solomon was wiser than anybody. He was so wise, he knew everything. He did not teach falsity. Solomon taught the truth. 1 Kings 4.29. Yet he was a huge sinner. Do you know the demons? The demons have perfect intellect. They know the truth, but they sin. They fall. They twist the truth. Peter was a sinful man, but this did not stop him from being infallible when he wrote first and second letters of Peter. Those are infallible. Those are inerrant. Those are in scripture. <clears throat> so Peter himself was infallible when he wrote first and second letter of Peter, yet we know he was a sinner. He denied Christ. It is also possible for a pope to make mistakes, even on doctrine. All right? Not, here's the point though, just not when he is teaching under the charism of infallibility. Okay, when Jesus foretold future events, Peter didn't understand them. In fact, sometimes he denied the truth, like Jesus having to go to the cross. However, that didn't stop him from writing two letters that were infallible. This is important. We therefore, this is important. We therefore see that a pope is capable of making mistakes both morally and even doctrinal, but not in union and spoken infallibly. Wow. All right, so the fact that our non-Catholic brethren accept the inerrancy of Scripture, they all do. Scripture's perfect. It has no errors. No Christian tells you that Scripture has errors. So if the Protestants accept inerrancy of Scripture, that actually proves infallibility. It means those writers who wrote it down were infallible. Well, Father, it was the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but it was a human author who penned it. If God can take fallible, sinful men who were the authors of the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was a text collector. He was sinful. They were all sinful. And if he can take them... In, it, it is so important, failable, sinful men, and transmit his truth to them through them without error so that we have an inerrant Bible. Why could not God do the same with failable and sinful clergy? All right? And use them to preserve his church teaching without error. If he preserved the Bible without error, why can't he preserve church teaching without error? Well, Father, we only follow the written word. Really? The word comes in two forms. 
Your word comes in two forms, written and spoken. Nobody has ever written down to me that my family comes from Croatia and Czechoslovakia. I've never received a written formal document that says, Dear Chris, your family comes from Croatia and Czechoslovakia. I never received that in writing. Does that make it invalid? No, because orally it has been a tradition in our family that we carry on the Czech and Croatian traditions at Christmas, at Easter. The word that is spoken is no less powerful than the word that is written. How could you only say, okay, if you believe that it's only sola scriptura, then when somebody comes to you and says, hey, um, hey you know, the other day you told me this. No, I didn't. I didn't see it in writing. Well, all I did just just tell you that uh, you owe me 10 bucks. I don't owe you 10 bucks. Well, you told me you would give me 10 bucks. No, you don't have it in writing. Yeah, writing helps, but it doesn't make it. Did you know that an oral contract in the court of law is just as valid as a written contract as long as both sides agree it's the truth? As long as both sides agree. And so we don't get that. Do you think God is going to say, well, I can only communicate to you by pen. I'm not allowed to speak to you. No, all that that came to be written in the Bible was through God speaking orally. So this is really important. We don't understand this. Okay, so if God can do this, it it makes sense. Otherwise, if God didn't do this, We are left with this perfect document called the Bible that is used but misinterpreted. You can't have 40,000 different interpretations. Right now there's 40,000 different Christian religions. You cannot have 40,000 different religious interpretations. They're all going to use it to justify their contradictory teaching. You can't have more than one truth. You can't. The fault is not in Scripture, but in the desire to part with its official interpreter, the church. That's the problem. All right, so let's go on real quick. There's a good article online by Jimmy Aiken, another one by Jason Everett. I want to quote from these guys at Catholic Answers. They're both really good. How do you argue papal infallibility? All right, to non-Catholics... As we just said, infallibility to them is synonymous with, that means you say the Pope knows everything. You say the Pope is sinless. The phrase papal infallibility does not occur in scripture. This is true, but neither does the word Trinity. But the whole meaning is there. All right, let's look at this. It simply means that the Holy Spirit will protect you from formally teaching error. That's all it means. It's not that the church knows everything, hardly, but that the church will always be preserved from teaching you error. Again, regarding declared faith and morals, not about vaccine or building a wall. That's not what we're talking about. For whoever heard the church hears Christ. That's Luke 10, 16. And Christ cannot teach error. So if Luke 10, 16 says, for whoever who, her hears the church hears Christ, Christ can't teach error. Oh, but the church can? 
He could never allow that. So the question should not be, where is infallibility in the Bible? But rather, where in the Bible does it say that Christ's church would teach error? Again, I'm not talking everything a church member says. There are some bishops and priests right now that, oh my goodness, you just got to shake your head. There's one, oh my, that's putting out there on his own Facebook page that a zygote is not a human being. That life does not begin at conception. Are you kidding me? And excuse me, but then there's crazy bishops supporting this priest? This priest is teaching that, that love can be expressed in the physical sexual act between two men or two women, and we got bishops supporting this? That is not infallible. They're speaking on their own opinion. They're not speaking in union with the College of Bishops and the chair of Peter as given by Christ. They're rogue. Don't follow priests like that or bishops like that. How many bishops that we got condemning the good priests and, 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 and promoting and our, our, the Vatican promoting the latest round of, of cardinals to one who believes marriage is not between a man and a woman and abortion is okay. Are you kidding me? So that's not what we're talking about here. That we need to address. We need to pray for, but that doesn't change the fact that the church has the truth. What that means is somebody's not following the church. What that means is those priests and bishops are not following the teachings of the church. Man. Okay, so Christ promised that the gates of hell could never prevail against his church. This is Matthew 16, 18. So the devil, the father of lies, so if the church lies to you in, in, in again, in infallible teaching, then the gates of hell have prevailed. But you will never see infallible teaching that says abortion is okay or marriage can be between two men or homosexuality is okay. That is not church teaching. That is not church teaching. So the church did not invent infallibility in 1870. Christ gave it. In fact, the development of doctrine goes over centuries. Okay? It's just not something the church invented. It's usually created, the doctrine is defined because we have heresy. We have it. It's unbelievable. All right, I, I, one of my favorite stories is about the church, what happened in 80 AD. Now this is going back to the first century. In 80 AD, what apostle was still alive? <clears throat> John. He was in Patmos. And the church at Corinth was having major difficulties. They needed help. So the church at Corinth needed help from the top of the church. You know where they went for that help? Well, should have been John. He's a living apostle. No, they didn't go to John. With John's blessing, they went to Clement I, the fourth pope in Rome, even though John was much closer to Corinth at Patmos. They went to Clement I, the fourth pope. And John even said, I'm not the head of the church. This is a living apostle who laid his head on the breast of Jesus and has the humility to say that Christ established the hierarchy and I'm not the pope. 
That's phenomenal. He said Clement the first is. And so the church of Corinth went to the Clement the first. How come we don't hear about this? This is fact. You can look it up. So let's look at our next slide. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed the slide of Pope Joan. <laughs> so so uh, if Brother Mark wants to show that, can you believe they even have statues of this? Somebody actually even created an image of Pope Joan who never existed. That's how much anti-Catholic propaganda. Okay, let's go to our next slide. Peter and Paul. How could Peter then be infallible? This is our next slide. That's Peter and Paul on the screen. How could Peter then, Father, be infallible if Paul said he was wrong? You know why I'm putting this one in? I just got this one mailed to me the other day. Father, how can you claim your papacy is of Christ when Paul himself said Peter was wrong? Galatians 2, 11 through 16. All right, you got to know the context. All right, Paul wasn't questioning Peter's teaching. Why did Paul say that Peter was wrong for not practicing what he preached? Now we're back to you can preach the truth, but not be following it. That's why we still got to clean up our church. We're, we, it, uh. So what happened? Paul accused Peter. He said, you're wrong here. Because Peter left the table. He ignored the Gentiles because of they weren't following Judeo law and circumcision and following the, the, the law of the, of the dietary. And Peter's actions were basically hypocritical. He gave the right teaching, but not the right actions. That's what Paul corrected him. So you, it, basically, the sinfulness of a particular leader... Can that invalidate the divine institution of the church? No. Because he made a mistake. If we were to judge the church by the behavior of the apostles on Good Friday, we wouldn't have a church. If the behavior of the first members of the church were your basis that the church is true or not, you wouldn't have Christianity at all. Because I said... One betrayed him, one didn't believe in the resurrection, one denied him three times, and they all ran away at the cross, except John. Now, if you're basing your view of the actions of the first members of a church, there'd be nothing left of Christianity. Because every one of them, except John, failed the test on Good Friday. We don't see this. Just as the early Christians didn't leave Peter because of Judas, oh, I can't believe, Jesus, you let a man like Judas into your ranks. Do you leave Jesus because of Judas? Has anybody ever left Jesus because of Judas? No. We are not free to leave the church based on the faults of an individual. What you do is, like I said, some of these groups that are rising up now, is you work with them to change and come back to the truth. You don't give up on your faith. You don't stop going to church. As frustrated as some of the people I know, the beautiful people I know that have to sit in the pew and listen to homilies that are completely off the wall, sit there and listen to, to bishops teach something completely off the wall, wrong, yet they don't leave the church. God bless them. They're trying to change. They're trying to get them to see the truth. God bless you for doing that. God bless you. That's what it's important. 
And so we have to stay with the church. Now, even if there were <coughs> and there are weeds mixed in the wheat here in the church, you need to remain because Christ established this church. You know, if Jesus called Peter Satan right after he told him that he would build his church upon him. <laughs> so here's, here's Jesus saying, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. And then a few verses later calls him Satan. We can rest assured that Christ's church does not stand or fall based upon a particular member. Even the Pope. This is interesting. All right, so what does this ex cathedra mean? All right, ex cathedra is a Latin phrase which means from the chair. Okay? It refers to binding and infallible papal teaching which are promulgated by the Pope when, again, let me read, emphasize this, when he officially teaches a doctrine on faith and morals and addresses it to the hot tire world. Do you know that this actually comes from Jesus? Let's look at our next slide. Okay. This is Matthew 23. Let's read this. This is right from the Bible. The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair. This is Jesus' own words. Cathedras in Greek. They have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Listen to what Jesus says. Therefore, do and observe what they tell you, but do not follow their example, for they preach what they do not practice. Wow. Wow. Since Jesus recognized the authority of the Old Testament magisterium, when it spoke ex cathedra with the power and authority of Moses, why can't we recognize the New Testament magisterium of the church, which speaks of the authority not of Moses, but of Christ himself? And by baptism, the Catholic faithful, we have an obligation to stay and remain with the church, but to clean it up, fix it, heal it, make it aware of its mistakes, call out those a laity has every right to demand that a priest, a bishop, or even the Holy Father be held accountable. Especially our priests and bishops that are just wayward. When in exercise of the solemn magisterium, the Pope speaks ex cathedra. The faithful are bound to accept that teaching, again in faith and morals, and avoid anything contrary to it. Now, why? Because Christ protects his whole church so infallibility belongs to the church as a whole in doctrinal unity with the chair of Peter when solemnly taught as true doctrine. Now, I can't emphasize that enough. So we have this from Jesus himself who promised the apostles and their successors, the bishops, that the magisterium of the church is important. Why? Luke 10, 16. He who hears you, hears me. Who's Jesus talking to? The priests, the bishops. Who hears you, hears me. All right, let's read a sentence from <coughs> Lumen Gentium 25 because it kind of explains the doctrine of infallibility. Let's read this. Although Vatican I, this is just a confirmation of Vatican I. 
Although the individual bishops do not enjoy infallibility, so don't listen to the bad bishops, they can nevertheless proclaim Christ's doctrine infallibly. This is so even when they are dispersed around the world, provided that while maintaining the bond of unity among themselves and with Peter's successor, the Pope, and while teaching authentically, notice authentically, on a matter of faith and morals, they concur in a single viewpoint as the one which must be held conclusively. This authority is even more clearly verified when gathered together in an ecumenical council. They are teachers, that's what you hear, like Trent and others. Uh, they are teachers and judges of faith and morals for the universal church. Their definitions must then be adhered to with submission of faith. This came from Vatican I, this whole idea, but yet it goes back centuries before. Let's take a quick break. We're going to watch for you at home. We're going to watch a video of Scott Hahn. It's only two and a half minutes. Let's take a look where Scott Hahn tells us about papal infallibility. And so when you see the Father sending the Son and, and giving authority to the Twelve, but only giving the keys of the kingdom to one of the Twelve, Peter, with the Old Testament as the background in Isaiah 22, much to my shock, I discovered that there was a very strong basis in Isaiah 22 for not only the king having 12 royal ministers, but the king giving to one and only one of them that primacy as prime minister represented by the keys of the kingdom. And in Isaiah 22, just like in Matthew 16, you have not only primacy, but succession and office. So God is still fathering a family through Christ the Son who's working by the Holy Spirit, but the greatness of a father consists in him fathering one family, not three or four. And so when it comes to the Catholic Church in its unity of doctrine, its unity of moral teaching, its unity of worship, there's a great diversity to be sure, but it's a kind of symphonic diversity that doesn't threaten the unity. If anything, it deepens and enriches it because God is a father who's raised one family, but he's kept them united to fulfill his son's promise, the gates of hell will not prevail. And plus, he also said, I will build my church on this rock. He didn't ask Peter to build him a church. And so the glory and greatness of the Catholic Church is not a human achievement, but God's fatherly accomplishment. And that's how I came to see authority in family and covenantal terms. I mean, we believe that as Christians with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are fallible men, but the Holy Spirit was able to override their fallibility and render them infallible in writing Scripture. Why can't the Holy Spirit also override the fallibility of everybody from Peter to John, Paul, and Benedict mm -hmm. so that the family of God gets the Word of God through the Spirit of God with clarity and authority? Okay, so Scott Hahn, a friend of our community, does a good job explaining what we've been talking about here today. Now, how could infallibility exist if some popes disagree with one another and some bishops? Okay, as we've been saying, infallibility only applies to solemn official teaching on faith and morals, not to discipline, all right? Not to decisions of unofficial matter or comments, even comments on faith and morals that are just opinions, are not infallible. So a doctrine proposed by a pope, in his own opinion, not proclaimed as doctrine, may be rejected. Yes. 
Like Peter in Galatians, 2 Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 2, his actions had to do with discipline, not with teaching of faith and morals. So the problem with Peter's actions, not his teachings, Paul acknowledged that Peter very well knew the correct teaching. How do you know that, Father? That's Galatians 2, 12, and 13. All right, so how many times has the Pope spoken infallibly? All right, many of you will say twice, right? The Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, right? The Immaculate Conception and the Assumption are the only two times this Pope has spoken ex cathedra from the chair, but there are not, those are not the only two times that the, there's been papal infallibility, all right? In fact, there are many times been papal infallibility since 1870 in Vatican I, which defined it, John Paul II. You know, he used papal infallibility more than any other. You know why? Because canonizations, canonizations are infallible. Yeah. When the church declares a saint, it's infallible that they are in heaven. God inspired that. So when the Pope says we declare and define that St. Faustina is a saint, that's infallible. St. Faustina is in heaven. Note that verb define. That has come to be used as the key word for infallibility. If you see a Pope say, we define or I define, that means he's making a definition of infallibility, but you won't hear that with some of this craziness. You can't hear certain bishops get up there and say, I declare and I define marriage is between two men. Abortion is okay. They can't do it. So yes, it gets us upset, but rest assured your teaching is protected. The Code of Canon Law says this. This is interesting. 749, quote, no doctrine is understood to be infallibly defined unless it is clearly established as such. And you know what? Statements of error, like life does not begin at conception, or that homosexuality is okay, those are error. You can rest assured your church teaching is still protected. Now, what about criticizing our bishops or even the Pope? Okay, yes, it is the moral duty of every Christian to consider when somebody says something, the benefit of the doubt, to find the good. Yes, I get that. This goes double for pastors, triple for bishops, and quadruple for the Pope, according to Dr. Jeff Myris of catholicculture.org. <coughs> Thought that was interesting. However, moreover, it is also a spiritual moral duty of all of us to seek something in our words and words we hear that grows us in holiness. Okay. How do I grow in holiness if I hear a bishop off the rails? All right. Discerning an error and responding to it out of love is how you do that. It doesn't mean we can't say anything. I think there's a big misconception of the church. Well, I don't want to be slandering or I don't want to be gossiping. No, you can't gossip when it's the truth and it's meant out of love to help somebody. Now, there can be detraction. 
I mean, if one of our priests is an alcoholic, I don't need to call some priest in California that doesn't work with us and tell them all about a priest here that's an alcoholic. It's true, yeah, and that's detraction. Nobody needs to know. But if that priest is driving his parishioners all over the county and he's an alcoholic, yeah, you gotta, you got to get involved. And if that priest or bishop is leading souls to damnation, you've got to get involved if you're a parishioner. All right, one example of this is when someone suggests that we need to downplay the truth in order to appear to be more sensitive and supportive of those who don't understand. No. Every one of us has the moral obligation to inform our conscience. We can't just say, well, we don't want to hurt feelings. The church of nice is going to be the church of hell if we do that. That's not the point. The best response in this case is to recognize carelessness about the truth is uncharitable and unmerciful. You can't just turn your head. It's with love that we respond. All right? With love is always the key aspect as a Christian witness. It's hard. Because a lot of times it, they don't want to hear the truth. But I always look at myself and say, okay, I know I'm a sinner. And so that's what I try to work with. Now, when our priests and bishops and even the Pope confuse or mislead the faithful by their actions or statements, it's usually because, and I think this is true, of their failure failure to stand against the culture. See a particular bishop, Texas, and on his knees supporting an organization that has publicly promoted their manifesto is pro-abortion, pro-gay marriage, pro-transgenderism, destruction of the family, and advancement of Marxism. How in the world can any Catholic, let alone a bishop, stand there and kneel in support of that organization? You don't know your faith. The church has condemned every one of those five things. And this particular group promotes all five. And we've got these flags flying. God bless the bishop in Worcester, McManus, that actually called out a Catholic school because they were flying the flags, the rainbow flag and BLM. And he said, sorry, they're not in line with church teaching. He's been crucified, crucified, destroyed in the Boston Globe. God bless you, Bishop McManus. We need more like you. Because you're trying to save these souls. You're trying to save them the truth. God bless you. We need more. God bless Bishop, our good friend, Cordy Leone, saying our church teaches that you do not publicly promote abortion or you don't receive Holy Communion. He's been ostracized, called every name in the book. Unbelievable. God bless them. And we need to support them. So anyway, church leaders may genuinely believe that they are more likely to win souls for Christ by being nice. They believe that. 
All right, I, I, I get that. A heart can be big. But sometimes we say your heart can be so big that it clouds your vision. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is the truth. The truth. You need both. I know I'm always up here pounding the truth, but yes, I have to do it with love. Love comes first. Love comes first. But it's not love to watch a soul be lost. That's not merciful. It's not love. This kind of pastoral approach is not Catholic teaching and is not legitimate pastoral approach. It's false mercy. If I have mercy, I'm going to get you to heaven, not so you'd be lost to hell. When church leaders seem to welcome those who refuse to accept the teaching of the church and seem to criticize those who are striving to uphold church teaching, they adversely affect morale and discourage not only Catholics who are confused, but even those who are not confused. I know several great people right here in our own diocese. They're not confused. They know the truth, but they're discouraged because they see those who are adamantly and publicly rejecting our faith are being embraced. This is crazy. Deciding exactly what <clears throat> and when to criticize, though, is, is careful. You got to be careful. I read this, this Dr. Jeff Myris on Catholic culture, and I want to use it. I'm going to use his words because I thought it was very good. He says, criticize away, but before you do, do this. You better make sure that you have sound Catholic formation, considerable theological knowledge, a preference for the mind of the church over personal concerns, an understanding of both the reality and the limits of papal infallibility, considerable prudence, and unless there is sin or heresy, obedience to your bishop. For nothing good ever comes from defiance of legitimate ecclesial authority. But remember, as we are in vows, I am not required to follow even the highest superior who asked me to do something contrary to church teaching. Thank God that's never happened to me here in the Marians. Thank the Lord. No priest has never come up to me and say, I can't teach that abortion is wrong. No priest or superior has ever come up to me and said, I can't preach marriages between a man and a woman. No priest or superior has ever come up to me and says, I can't give Holy Communion to somebody kneeling on the tongue. Because those are church teaching. And that is the beauty of following church teaching. So we're not talking about disobeying those things because your bishop doesn't like it. No. If the bishop tells me that I got to say women should be ordained, sorry, that's not happening. And I do not owe you my authority or my, my obedience because what you're asking is contrary to church teaching. But you have to discern these things first. We have to do it in love and we have to do it the right way. This is so critically important. All right, let's look at the next picture. This is everybody's favorite. Pope Francis doing his airline press conferences. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Okay. These are the unvetted interviews that cause a lot of confusion. All right. Now, 
in all fairness, in all fairness, um, what the Holy Father says and does is going to be a source of confusion if it's not stated the right way. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Now, the wisdom of him doing this is definitely debatable. Okay? I've had many priests say to me, why does he do this? But sometimes the words are different from the reports, like that, that one about who am I to judge. I personally was mad too. But then when I saw the actual transcript, he did comment, was talking about somebody who then decides to change their life, realizes they're an error. At least what a fellow priest sent to me. I, I never saw the actual transcript. I apologize. I shouldn't say I did. A priest sent me supposedly what was the full transcript. So I hope I'm speaking accurately here. But basically that what he said was not what was reported. He just didn't say, who am I to judge? Let them do whatever they want. He was saying for those who have converted and saw the errors of their ways, I don't judge them. Kind of like the, uh, the um, adulteress with Jesus, right? But what did Jesus say to her? Go and sin no more. I do think that part was missing. Could have been much more clarified. Yes, who am I to judge? Just like Jesus. But go and sin no more. All right? So this is important. <clears throat> so despite this, Christ is protecting his church even from the Pope, when those comments are made, because they're not infallible. All right, the controversies are many. Um, okay, so how we do this, we have to be careful, because even Paul, let's look at, I mean, David, let's look at our next slide. I want to go to 1 Samuel 24, 7. Even David, when he realized how bad Saul was, David said, the Lord Forbid that I said to the Lord, forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to lay a hand on him, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, what was Paul? Now, a lot of people use this to not ever correct anybody. That's false. What was Paul, or I keep saying Paul, David, talking about? Then he wouldn't kill Saul. <laughs> so I don't think any of us have had the intention to do that. So when people use this example that you can't criticize, Paul was, what I, I'm sorry, I keep saying Paul. David was talking about Saul, that I shall not lay a hand on him to kill him. None of us are talking that. So be careful in how we read context. Like St. Faustina, pray, pray for our bishops, our priests, and our Holy Father. All right, so let's finish our last page. Does God pick the Pope? Oh, this is a good one. Because a lot of people have said to me, how in the world could the, the, that God pick some of the popes we've had? Do you know one pope was killed by the husband of a wife he was committing adultery with? Do you know that another pope, uh, Benedict IX, ooh, I wouldn't recommend that as spiritual reading. <laughs> All right. But, the cardinals in a conclave are to invoke the Holy Spirit and seek his guidance, but God will never override free will. Everybody's saying, oh, it's God's will that this president was elected. No, it isn't. It may be in God's ordained will. He may not want it, but in his permissive will, he may have allowed it because what did Jesus say to the Israelites? We want a king. We want a king. He said, no, you don't. We want a king. We want a king. He said, no, you don't. 
So what happened? Finally, God said, all right, I'll give you your king. You get what you deserve if you don't change your ways. And so sometimes God will not over, never does God override our free will. Now listen to what Ratzinger said. This shocked me. This shocked me. Ratzinger acknowledged that cardinals can elect who is not God's will. Let's read what Ratzinger said. This, this blew my mind. When asked if the Holy Spirit is responsible for the election of the Pope, Cardinal Ratzinger, let's read what he said. I would say no. <laughs> I would not say so. I would say that the Spirit does not exactly take control of the affair, but rather, like a good educator, leaves us much space, much freedom. Get it? Freedom, free will, without entirely abandoning us. Thus, the Spirit's role should be understood in a much more elastic sense. Not that he dictates the candidate for whom one must vote. But you're to inform your conscience, bishops, cardinals. Probably the only assurance he offers is that the thing cannot be totally ruined. <laughs> there are too many contrary instances of popes the Holy Spirit obviously would not have picked. <laughs> That's Cardinal Ratzinger. But that does not change the faith. Okay? We've had some really bad popes, as I mentioned. And not just ones like Peter who made mistakes and then repented. We're talking about genuine bad ones. I mentioned Benedict IX. If an individual man seeks God's guidance and still falls like Peter and then repents, God bless him. It's the ones who remain obstinate in sin that there's a problem. If an individual... <clears throat> all right. If an individual then seeks God's guidance of the Holy Spirit... He can count on it. But this does not mean that the man will act on it. I realize this every day. In my morning offering, I get up first thing in the morning, I make my morning offering, I ask God to keep me free from sin. Do I fall into sin? Yeah. Many act the opposite. And when we do that, we get what we deserve. If we vote for politicians. I just got the most scathing email. I know I talk about this a lot, but the probably the most one ever says it just literally attacked me because I support only candidates that are followers of Trump. I said, I've never said that. You know what I have said? I support candidates as you need to, too, if you're Catholic, and so does the church, that are pro-life, pro-religious freedom, and marriage between man and a woman. Those are the three non-negotiables that we have to support. I don't care if it's a man from Mars who is running for office. I don't care if it's my own brother. I don't have a brother, but let's say my cousin. Let's say my sister, who I love dearly, was running for president. If my sister, who I love dearly, was running for president and says, we need abortion, marriage needs to be redefined, and religious freedom needs to be stripped and churches closed, you know what I would say? You're not getting my vote. And that's my sister. I don't, no, please don't send me a letter. My sister did not say that. 
my sister did not say that. My sister's a good Catholic. I'm saying of my own family. It has nothing to do with who the person is. It has everything to do with what they teach, what they stand for. And as a Catholic, you cannot stand for pro-abortion candidates, period. You cannot. I don't care where they come from. And so this is the thing. When I do, if I start voting for them, God's not going to block my free will. He's going to give me what I deserve. And we wonder why we're in the mess we're in. Wow. By presuming the discernment of the good, and this is important, discernment and goodwill of the cardinals, when they vote, we may, we, we may presume that the man they elected was chosen in accord with God's guidance, yes. And that his election was God's will in a way, yes. But it's also possible they voted by their own will. People who say that it's automatically God's will that every person be put into a superior role in the church, or even as a bishop or cardinal, according to Ratzinger, it's not true. Not true. I found that very interesting. So once a selection is made, however, this is what's fascinating. Once a selection is made, however, then it becomes God's will that we support and get him on the right track. Once a selection has been made, a new mode of divine will kicks into play. It's like a spouse. I had a woman come to me a few years ago and she said, Father, I totally blew it. I said, okay. She said, I was to be a nun. Now I'm married and I have three children. I can't live with myself. I miss my call. I was to be a nun. I let God down. I abandoned God. Now I'm a wife with three children. You know what God says about that? Very clear Catholic Church teaching. Okay, maybe it was God's will you were to be a nun. Maybe everything in God's plan had you to be a nun. But now that you took that oath, that vow, and you entered into the sacrament of marriage and you have three children, you are now, it is God's will to be the best mother and wife you can be. It is now no longer God's will that you leave your husband and your children and go to the convent. That is not God's will for your life now because you made the choice. It's the same with me with the priesthood. God offered me two beautiful goods priesthood or marriage. I struggled and struggled and struggled for years and years. Yes, I may have made, I know now the right decision was God's will for me was to be a priest. I know that now. I can't even imagine going back now. Can't even imagine it. But I may have made the wrong decision 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and got married now, do you think if I realized I was called to the priesthood that I would leave my wife and my children and abandon her and say, sorry, I, God called me the priesthood? Maybe he did. In fact, I know he did. But uh-uh. God will then say, I'm going to meet you where you're at. You now made that commitment. Now be the best husband and father you can be. It's the same with the papacy. Maybe Ratzinger says, even if we, the cardinals don't elect the one that was God's will, we now got to make him the best pope he can be. And sometimes that requires correction. There's nothing wrong with that. All right, let's keep going. We're almost done. All right, now, okay. 
<clears throat> so we need to pray. This is very important. All right. Okay. Um, let's see. Since a man accepts, okay. We pray that the cardinals will, um, will be choosing with the way that God is guiding them. When they meet in the conclave, we need to pray that they will earnestly seek God's guidance, not their own. All right. A man who accepts his election as Pope has now become the divinely ordained Pope. Now he can mess it up or not. It's up to him. Even if they were to make a bad choice, we can be confident that God will try to bring a greater good out of it. All right. So to finish and wrapping up here, how then can popes or cardinals contradict each other? When Catholics say popes can't contradict each other, we mean that they can't do so when they teach infallibly. All right? Not when they simply make a disciplinary or admin decision. All right? Like, you know, it just, it, it doesn't. That's not infallible. Like, I, I'm not in favor of... Um, female altar servers. And the reason why is because many vocations to the priesthood are found through altar serving. Very, very powerful. And I was talking with a family that their two boys want to be altar servers. Please be to God. But their church has so many that they only get to serve like every four months. I feel bad because a lot of those two boys, I think, would find a vocation at the altar. Now that that was allowed, I accept it because the church has stated it's not contrary to infallibility, okay? It's not contrary to church teaching. It's a discipline. It's an act of discipline. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> We're not talking about when they make these discipline or admin decisions or give their own opinion. Interviews with popes and bishops, no. Not being official church documents, we don't have to be worried that they are destroying the church because a Catholic needs to understand they're not teaching, they're not giving church teaching. They do not involve an exercise of the magisterium. Neither do books they publish or Facebook posts. Like a priest saying that conception does not begin life. That's a crazy opinion. You know, George Weigel, we're going to have him on our EWTN show soon. He's agreed to come on. We're excited about that. He said, popes are not like presidents or governors. So a change of papal administration does not mean a change of Catholic views. Doctrine does not change. It is not about one's views, but of settled understandings of the truth. The pope is bound to revelation to the fundamental structure of the church, to the sacraments, and to the definitions of the councils, amongst other things. The Pope is bound to that. And so we need to hold our church leaders accountable. Popes, he said, in other words, are not authoritative figures who only teach what they want and what they will. They are servants. They are servants. The Pope is a guardian of tradition of which he is the servant, not the master. This is why we call him the servant of the servants of God. Did you know that's the official name for the Pope? The servant of the servants of God. <clears throat> so apostolic succession is where um, I think a lot of people don't realize. Um, let's take a look at our next slide. This is a picture of a bishop laying his hands. All right. You all know about apostolic succession. Probably I've, I've talked about it before. 
But apostolic succession is only in the Catholic Church. Now, the Orthodox claim it, but they're no longer under the chair of Peter. But the apostolic succession is basically whenever a priest is ordained, when I was ordained by Bishop Polly, he laid hands on my head to give me the Holy Spirit. When Bishop Polly was ordained a priest, a bishop laid hands on him. When that bishop was ordained a priest, a bishop laid hands on him. When that bishop was ordained a priest, some bishop laid hands on him. You get the point. Every single priest alive in the world today, all 465,000 lines go back to one of the 12 apostles. Unbroken line of laying on of hands. And people say, Father, that's not possible because some priests are decrepit and sinful. Yes, that means they're rejecting the grace that they were given. But they were given the grace. Now, how do we know this? That only the Catholic Church, you have that unbroken line going all the way back. It's scriptural. Well, you want to blow away a non-Catholic? Tell them this is scriptural. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 4, 14, where Paul reminds Timothy that the office of bishop had been conferred on him through the laying on of hands. Notice in 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul advises Timothy not to be hasty in handing on this authority, meaning just don't ordain anybody, especially anyone not in line with church teaching. They should never be ordained. In Titus, Paul describes the apostolic authority Titus had received and urges him to act decisively in leadership. The belief that the apostles handed on their authority to others was one of the most frequently and staunchly defended doctrines of the church fathers. If you don't believe this, then you have to argue with all the early church fathers. Do we just throw away what the first 1,500 years of Christianity taught us until the Protestant Reformation? No. Apostolic succession is the line of bishops stretching back to the apostles, as I said. All over the world, Catholic bishops are part of this lineage that goes back to the apostles, something impossible for every other religion. Impossible. This role of apostolic succession preserves the true doctrine, as we see in the Bible, to make sure that the apostles' teachings would be passed down after they died. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, listen to this, what you have heard from me before many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also after you. You know, when people say, Father, I'm not into man-made religion. Well, either am I, but I'm into the religion that Christ gave us to men, and then the men gave to me. Beautiful. This is church teaching, all right? We can't just use scripture because they can't be interpreted in any way you want. You have to have an interpreting authority. I always use the example of the Constitution and the Supreme Court. When the Supreme Court works the way it should be, it interprets the Constitution. If you want to read the Constitution any way you want, and I want to read it any way I want, it's chaos, you're supposed to have the Constitution interpreted by the Supreme Court when it works as it should. Recently, it has. Now, the last slide. What's the magisterium? All right, the Latin word magisterium means the duty or office of a teacher, tutor, or master. 
So here it means the teaching authority of the church. All right? Now, <clears throat> it might seem a sacred scripture and sacred tradition are separate. Non-Catholics only take sacred scripture. We Catholics have sacred scripture and sacred tradition, not man-made tradition. And as it, with the church teaches, sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God, which is entrusted to his church. In other words, my words are both spoken and written. Your words are both spoken and written. Would you be a little bit aggravated after, I guarantee you would after one day, if anybody and only followed your written words. Hey, uh, mom, can you pass me uh, the ketchup, please? Um, would you please put that down in writing? And when I receive your request, I will judge it, review it, and then if I determine it feasible, I'll send you the ketchup. That's crazy. We speak by words, not just written, but oral. This is as important. People don't understand that. It might seem as if sacred scripture and tradition, I said, are separate. The truths of which God has revealed to his church, though, come up in both ways, oral and written, but they constitute one body, the word of Christ. The Protestant practice of equating the word of God only with the written Bible is error. Sola Scriptura is not in the Bible. It's not. Sacred scripture is itself a product of the church and thus a product of sacred tradition. You know where the scriptures came from? Sacred tradition. Some of the stories written in the scriptures happened centuries before, especially with the Old Testament. And so this is important. Sacred scripture is itself a product of the Catholic church and sacred tradition. So the last thing is extraordinary magisterium versus ordinary. And this is very important. I'm going to take you to seminary now. The solemn or extraordinary magisterium, we see this in solemn definitions declared by a pope, like the dogma of the assumption or the immaculate conception, or maybe an ecumenical council. That is the extraordinary magisterium. Now the ordinary and universal magisterium, on the other hand, is the teaching of the church via the normal activities, the ordinary activities, such as papal letters, statements of bishops, catechism, homilies. Now, the important thing is, though, only those in line with the College of Bishops and the teaching of the church are infallible. This is not to say, then, that everything that a pope, bishop, or priest says, or has ever said, is part of infallibility or the ordinary and universal magisterium. No, but that is the way, the means in which it is taught. Catechism, homilies, letters, encyclicals, I mean, um, pronouncements. So this is important. So bottom line, when a doctrine has been taught as authoritative over time and by many popes and bishops, this indicates it is a teaching of the ordinary and universal magisterium and must be received and believed by you and me. If you have a priest that is not following that, he needs correction, lovingly, lovingly, solemnly, solemnly defined as, as, as the extraordinary. So much of the moral teaching of the church is taught in this way, the ordinary way. But while individual bishops, though, are not infallible. 
I get letters all the time. Father, Bishop so-and-so said it is okay that I vote for a pro-abortive candidate. Not if there is a pro-life candidate available. He's wrong. He's wrong. Simple. So these are the things that we have to understand. Um, Catholics, um, the teaching is taught. Individual bishops are not infallible. Um, thus, Catholics must reject any understanding of doctrine that would only be reduced to a single bishop that's not in line with church teaching. The magisterium does not invent new doctrine, such as marriage. For the magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. And if some think that they're going to rewrite that, they're not of God. All Catholics, whether clergy or lay, secular or peasant, must believe the same teachings of Christ and the same commandments of Christ if they hope to get to heaven. That's why we teach what we teach. If I truly love you, I want to be in heaven with you. Don't think, I think I'm going to be there and you're not. It's probably the opposite. I love Father Dan Cambro. He says, I'll be shutting the lights out in purgatory if I'm lucky, he says. Because priests and bishops are held to a higher standard. To whom much is given, <coughs> much is expected. Please pray for your priests and bishops and the Holy Father. Because of the more confusion and the more misleading of souls, that it's okay to do this or it's just fine to do that, is leading souls to damnation. And those priests and clergy, hierarchy, bishops, cardinals, even the Holy Father are responsible for that. They need our prayers. Pray for me. Every day I pray that I teach what is the truth. And every day I preach that I can do it with love. I know people don't always think that because I teach that you have to vote this way. I'm just giving you church teaching. That's all. Praise be to God that we have it because it's the guidepost to get us to heaven. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. God bless everybody. Before we go, I wanted to uh, invite you all to become Marian helpers. Look on your screen. If you see the slide there, you can join us at micprayers.org. It's a beautiful way to join us to receive a lot of graces of our prayers, masses, rosaries, and penances. Uh, next slide real quick. I uh, would love to invite you to come to Buffalo. Uh, Kathy Walbeck and the Holy Face Ministry um, as sponsored. We used to do this for years, way before I became a Marian. It's called the Marian, uh, excuse me, the Marian Fathers um, Divine Mercy Conference. It's been held at Our Lady of Victories for years, like I said, way before I became a Marian. And we haven't had it in years because of COVID and whatnot. We'd love to invite you. If you'd like to come and join us, we've got great speakers, Stephen Ray um, and some others. Uh, uh, Kelly uh, Walquist is a great speaker. These are great Catholics. Come hear us, see us, meet us. August 27th, up at Our Lady of Victories in Buffalo. You can contact Peter uh, at um, uh, online, or you can go to the, the divinemercy.org slash buffalo. The screen has the info, 800-462-7426. And last, I forgot to bring the image, 
but please protect the United States with your prayers. Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception, beautiful image we're making right here at the shrine. I will personally bless it for you. Brother Mark can show it on the screen. This is a beautiful painting, gallery wrapped. You can get framed or unframed. And if you can't afford it and you really will hang it and you really will pray for the U.S. and the world, I'll send it to you for free. So come be with us. God bless you. We hope to see you next week for Explaining the Faith. Until then, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Wow. God bless Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.